Welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a WCCM podcast. I'm Elba Rodriguez. In this episode, we'll hear Father Lawrence Freeman speak about the need of teaching the richness of our contemplative tradition and the knowledge and wisdom behind the simple repetition of a sacred word. This talk was part of a John Main seminar at Quest University in Squamish, Canada. So, we may speak about the wisdom of the mantra, but when you first hear of it, for many people it just sounds foolish, which is a good way to start. It's foolishness in the eyes of the world, and the prevailing value of the world is success. So, to start something, which you know condemns you to failure, is uh, foolish in the eyes of the world. But as always, there is divine wisdom behind appearances. Uh, we began the retreat with these words of St. Paul. The image of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and lost, but to us it is the power of God. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? God chose the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the powerful. But at first, when you and keep in mind uh, those of you who are, who are new to meditation and maybe just jumping in the, into the pool, how can repeating one word continuously lead to knowledge and wisdom and all the benefits that the tradition tells us, all the fruits that it will bring us. And we say, okay, maybe it's going to have a certain uh, good effect. It's a tool. Most people think about meditation at first as a tool. Everything in Scientific techno, uh, techno scientific culture is uh, instrumental. It's everything is a tool, a device. So we naturally think of meditation at first as a tool, a useful tool to, to do what? To reduce stress, to improve your sleeping, to deal with stress, anxiety, fear, uh, addiction, all of these things. But if we listen to the teaching of the tradition on the wisdom of the mantra, it's more challenging. What about, and then we say, well, what, yeah, okay, it's maybe useful, but, uh, you know, what about my intelligence? What about my imagination? What about my creativity? Meditation uh, can, you know, maybe help but these are gifts I should use, not reject. We had a conference once at a business school and we invited some well-known financial figures to speak about meditation. And one of them, uh, a very good person, a very kind person, uh, but quite unreligious, thinks that all religion is all in the synapses of the brain, uh, 
and he spoke about meditation. And uh, he spoke about the mantra. That was his way of meditation. And at one point, he said, you know, I, and he's a very successful man. Everybody was hanging on his words, you know. And he said, you know, whatever success I've had uh, in life, I attribute to meditation. So everybody was listening. You know? <laughs> and then he said, you know, when I meditate, sometimes it certainly generates the creative part of the brain. And, some, and sometimes I get these amazingly good ideas. And I know this is, this is the way to go. I start, you know, I start uh, planning it and plotting it and looking at investment opportunities. And, and I thought, oh my god. <laughs> but then he said, but then I say, I'm meditating. And I drop the thoughts, good thoughts. And I go back to the mantra. And to be honest with you, I don't know that many Christians or clergy who would understand that as well as he did. So when we begin to meditate, we immediately confront this sort of dichotomy between real wisdom and, uh, and foolishness. What is foolish? What is wise? And we enter into that uh, choice, as it were, uh, step by step, and we have to decide faithfully which path we're going to follow, foolish or wise. And then, for religious people, there's another question. What about God? It's all very well. Think about, yeah, this is a, another method of prayer, which of course it is in one sense. It's another dimension of prayer. It's a dimension of prayer that hasn't been taught adequately uh, in the Christian churches. Uh, in the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, it's always been known and respected as the Jesus prayer, the Hesychast tradition. Doesn't mean that everybody practiced it, but everybody knew about it. And people would say, you know, one day when I'm retired or when I've had a long holiday, I will go off to a monastery and I'll learn the Jesus prayer. Or they try a little bit. But everybody in the Orthodox tradition knows about it. I don't think anyone would go up to a parish priest in an Orthodox uh, uh, church and say, Father, this is not Christian. Okay. But in the Western, our Western churches, both Catholic and Protestant traditions, for some reason, which won't take too long to go into, the whole of this contemplative dimension of faith, of life, and of prayer has been pushed to the margins and has often become an object of suspicion. And those who feel themselves charged by the power of God to defend orthodoxy and burn heretics at the stake or expose them, then uh, these people will often be the ones who are most vehemently against <coughs> what is actually an integral part of their own tradition, but they don't know about it. So, so 
a great deal of uh, our challenge today, and again, Sarah will be taking this up with us as we think about contemplative Christianity, a great deal of our challenge today is, is education, is re-educating ourselves about the full wonder of prayer, the f all the dimensions of prayer. And we can begin by teaching children and having bishops and uh, priests and teachers and principals and, all of, and parents and all of those involved in the spiritual education of children to take a proactive step on this to make sure that no child under a Christian influence uh, goes through their education process without learning what meditation is and without learning to meditate in class with their friends. All the evidence is, and, the, and many of you will know this firsthand, is, if, you don't, if not go to speak to Paul Tratnik, that uh, this has an amazing effect upon the classroom, upon the individual children, upon the atmosphere in the school. The question now is not why should we teach meditation to children, but why on earth don't we? What's the reason for not doing it? And what's the reason that there are so many Catholic schools and no doubt uh, Anglican schools uh, that are paying a lot of money to bring mindfulness into the school? I asked, I wrote to the Archbishop of Westminster the other day, he's a friend of our community, and I said, I'm getting letters from people who are saying, is the Catholic Church so bankrupt spiritually that we have to buy in mindfulness uh, into our schools? Haven't we got anything to teach them that brings, that brings these benefits or this peace and calmness of mind? So we have to, we're, we're, we are recovering from centuries of um, being alienated from our own, the richness of our own contemplative tradition. And you know, great teachers of our time Right. Bede Griffiths, Thomas Keating, John Main, you know, have Thomas Merton behind them, you know, lit the light in different ways. Uh, and, and it's up to us to pass it on and fill the, the room with light. But anyway, a lot of people, when they come to meditation for the first time, will say, okay, well, maybe it's, it's okay, but uh, what about God? You know, I'm not thinking about God during my meditation. How can it be prayer? Okay, deal with that. Everyone, everyone here who's been meditating for more than six months should know the answer and know how to respond to that question. Each of you is a teacher. Don't just ask, uh, you know, the, the experts. You are the experts. You should know. That's why after this, uh, after the seminar, every day is, is organizing, a director of our school of meditation is, is uh, leading a, um, uh, a workshop on uh, the essential teaching weekend, how to give the essential teaching weekend. The essential teaching weekend is exactly that, how to give the essential teaching of, of Christian meditation. And it's you, every one of you, who could be leading those. Okay, you're not rallying the troops. Uh, nevertheless, you should know that this is in, in the hands of the laity today, not the clergy. Don't, if, you, if you want to 
complain about the clergy, you have every right. <laughs> and maybe every justification. But don't do it if you're not prepared to, to take your load of responsibility for renewing and advancing the church at this time. It's you. Okay. So, people will say, so what about God, though? You know, I'm not thinking about God during meditation. And a very common question is, okay, I'm supposed to sit here saying the mantra uh, in my head, which is how people often describe it. That changes over time. It's more as if you're saying it or listening to it in your heart. We'll come back to that. So, what if God wants during my meditation and give me a message inspiration and I'm saying the mantra and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm effectively saying to God no I'm sorry I'm busy saying the mantra I can't speak to you at the moment <laughs> well the answer what is your answer to that question well our, our, our tradition <laughs> gives us the answer it's a no questions are foolish, provided you're prepared to listen to an answer that changes your mind. The only foolish questions are those which you ask with a closed mind and are not really prepared to change. So the answer to this question is going to be your idea of God will change in meditation, through meditation. I pray to God to rid me of God, says Meister Eckhart, and it expresses the apophatic tradition of Christian prayer and theology. It's a joke, of course. Some of the great mystics were also quite humorous. So I pray to God to rid me of God, well, that's a contradiction, paradox, but it says exactly what contemplative prayer is about. We have to let go of our images of God. Or Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century. Every image or every idea of God is an idol. If we're focusing upon images or ideas of God, we are idolaters. So it's a radical call to a new level of knowledge and experience of God beyond thought and image. And what about another question people you know, naturally ask? It's a good question. And what about other people? It's very selfish, you know, sitting here just saying my mantra and trying to be peaceful and calm. And uh, what about all the problems in the world? What about the American government? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> what about the British government? <laughs> you know, there are so many things uh, to pray for, human needs and suffering. And, God, and, and Jesus says to pray for what we need. He also says, don't forget that your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. So that's another question that is going to change the answer to which, if you're open to it, 
it's going to change your understanding of prayer, what prayer means. This is a big challenge to religious people and churches and clergy and hierarchy and you know, those, as I say, who feel charged by the power of God uh, to defend orthodoxy against all enemies. This is a challenge, not going to be easy. Isn't it selfish just to be focusing on myself? Well, is that what we're doing in meditation? Is that what saying the mantra is? So these are all, uh, there was a, a priest, uh, actually in an Anglican church in London, who used to refer to his, he sort of tolerated his meditation group. And, uh, but made it quite clear that he thought that they were a bit sort of redundant. And uh, he used to refer to them as my little group of navel gazers. <laughs> so these are all good questions. And we should, we should listen to ourselves asking them, and we can go to, uh, to other people, experienced people. We can go to the events that the School of Meditation organizes. We can, uh, we can uh, look at the website. We can talk to other people in our meditation group. We can do all sorts of ways in which, if we're serious about this search, how do we conduct the search? By facing the questions, listening to the questions, clarifying them, and, and moving on. So all good questions, which the tradition has thought about and answered uh, for, for, for a long time. Read Cassian, read The Cloud of Unknowing, read The Way of the Pilgrim. And above all, perhaps, meditate with other people and share your questions with them. And even modern scientific research tells us that meditation is good for you. It calms and clarifies mental operations and promotes creativity. Those areas of the brain light up uh, when we meditate. And regular meditation has a physical effect on the gray matter. So both science and theology and the contemplative tradition point very powerfully to meditation as a source of wisdom. Now, we have to be clear about what we mean by meditation, and it's used in a very, very general way today. So, when, and, and I'm not saying this is the only way you can use the word meditation, but when, I, when we speak about meditation, in this tradition, in this context, we're speaking about the mantra. That's why I'm focusing on that this morning. It's still only 10 o'clock, so I have to Actually, it's fast. It's uh, 5 to 10. <laughs> so at first, the mantra may puzzle us. But very quickly, it will bring us into paradox. Experientially, it will confront us with the reality that if we want to find, we have to lose. That if we want to own, we have to renounce. That if we want to live more fully, we have to die. We cannot understand the gospel 
without accepting its radically paradoxical nature. The gospel is the presentation of radical paradox in the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection, in his teaching, leaving self behind, leaving all our possessions. The Beatitudes are the, are the fruit of that spirit of paradox, which is, a, which is a spirit of wisdom. We cannot taste the fruit of wisdom without paradox. What seems to be op oppositional and contradictory. Now, we are a very left brain culture, techno scientific techno culture. There is, of course, in, in, modern, in, in, in modern physics, uh, in the subatomic world that we've discovered, uh, paradox is uh, confronting us all the time. But our general, you know, that, you, that the same particle can be present in different places at the same time. That light is both a, a, a wave and a what? Particle. What? Particle. particle, both wave and particle. So, so science, you know, has, is, is, it's not explaining uh, the spiritual mysteries, but it is giving us more and more metaphors. St. Paul would have loved uh, these, these discoveries of modern physics. He'd, I'm sure he'd have used them uh, in speaking about uh, the mystery of Christ. But they're metaphors. Science only gives us metaphors, real metaphors. But. Anyway, but it, most of us are still you know, trained in the, living in the Newtonian world, the easy world of action and reaction. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, cause and effect. This comes first, that comes next. So this left brain mentality uh, constructs a model of reality. And then it defends that model of reality. This is why scientists themselves can be the, the, the most bigoted and, and unopen people as they defend their models of scientific explanation. Uh, and, and there are fundamentalists in science as there are in religion or politics. But the pure, pure science is contemplative. And it understands that this function of our, this left brain function of constructing models of reality from available experience and data uh, is a good functional tool, but where does the information come from? What we now know from brain research over the last 30 years is that it's the right hemisphere of the brain which is the, our first contact with reality. This is where we first absorb the data of experience. The haiku moment. So the fresh, contemplative, childlike wonder of immediate experience. 
And then that is because it's, there's so much coming in, maybe, I don't know, uh, that's sent over to the left brain for processing and for constructing these models of reality. And we have am amazing results in our, in our techno-scientific world as a result of that. Just air travel, for one thing. So, but nevertheless, the left hemisphere of the brain, like Martha in the Gospel story, tends to look down upon Mary as a bit of a, waste, a, a waster, a, a wasting time, self-indulgent, navel-gazing. So meditation or massage or yoga or, you know, all of this is sort of okay, but it's sort of weekend activity. It's not about the real world. It's not about making the world run or the church run. And church leaders can fall into this uh, just as much as uh, teachers or business people or educators. So this, uh, this contrast needs to be made explicit. We need to understand this, if, if, and we will understand it, uh, if we continue meditating. We will just begin to realize there are these two hemispheres of reality, Martha and Mary, active and contemplative, as the answer to the question, and uh, left and right hemispheres, and uh, apophatic and cataphatic prayer, uh, two approaches to God in the Christian tradition, one in which we can say things about God and use an image of God, but the other, and the deeper, in which we recognize that God is ultimate mystery and therefore we have to let go of all words and images. So God. The mantra helps us to understand that God is always one step ahead of us ungraspable, and God is unknowable unless we willingly enter into the state of unknowing. Now, we're all prepared to watch a Netflix uh, series, and we suspend our disbelief. And if, if it's well done, we, we relax and enjoy the whatever it is, the kind of whatever you, you like watching. But we have to, we know it's not real. But we get something out of it at the same time. We enjoy it. Well, in the same way, we have to suspend St. Bonaventure, Bonaventure, Bonaventure uh, speaks about this, great disciple of St. Francis, speaks, you know, in a way that, uh, in a highly theological way, uh, about suspending the operations of the mind. Because we will never get there, we will never get to God firsthand unless we calm down and let go of, these, uh, of the thinking and the imagining and the, and the speaking. So, we have to willingly enter into the state of unknowing where we lay aside the words, the thoughts, and the imagination by which we think we know. 
or by which we know by thinking. As I said, it, that, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't abandon our minds, our thoughts, our imagination, our creativity uh, forever. But just as you might take, this is maybe not the best analogy, but just as you might take uh, 40 minutes to watch a Netflix movie, so you take half an hour to meditate. It's the opposite of that, but it's in the same way. You, 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 you know when you watch the Netflix movie, you're, you're, you're letting go of your mortgage problems or your fundraising problems or whatever else. But then you, you, you come back to the real world and then you pick up these challenges again. So in the same way, in the times of meditation, and this is where it becomes very practical and real, why we need set times of meditation. During this time, we let go of our worries and anxieties. This is, we actually put into effect the teaching of Jesus on prayer. He tells us, look at the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. Uh, do not worry. Let go of your worries and anxieties at the time of prayer. Set your mind on God's kingdom. Be in the present moment, in the right hemisphere. Be in the present moment. And go into the inner room of your heart. And be quiet. Don't use many words. Don't go chattering on like the pagans. And I think if, if Jesus were to pop into most Christian churches today, looking for a nice church to go to on a Sunday, he would probably say, what a load of pagans. <laughs> They never shut up. <laughs> do not, when you pray, do not be like the pagans who think that the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. Because your heavenly Father knows your needs before you ask. So we enter willingly into this state, this, this state of unknowing. It's not easy because the, the dance of the mind, or the whirl of the mind, the running of the mind, the constant activity of the mind, thinking about the past, imagining the future, daydreaming, anxieties, everything else, is, is not easy just to turn off. And we, we don't turn it off in that sense by force, but we lay aside the thoughts as they arise. So you sit down to meditate, your mind is running, and you slow it down by simply laying aside each thought as it comes up, each time you get distracted, you drop the distraction, even if it's like the financial guy who has this great idea about a solution to a problem, or even if you're a theologian and you have a great insight into God, uh, you, you let it go. Every time you let it go and return to the mantra, you are deepening your poverty of spirit. This is the way to be poor in spirit. It's the first of the Beatitudes. And when Jesus says, go and give away all your possessions, and we say, well, that's a beautiful idea, but not yet, you know? And I've got a child on the way. I don't think I can really let go of it. 
so start here. You let go of every possession, every thought, every image, every, uh, uh, what's the other one? Image, thoughts, words, every, everything that flows through the mind. You just lay it aside. You don't have to fight it. You don't have to try to suppress it. To fight it is only just to, will just increase the level of agitation in your mind and strengthen your ego. So don't fight it. But just lay it aside humbly. The only wisdom, said T.S. Eliot, is the wisdom of humility. So if you want to be wise, you have to, you know, be humble. And that nothing would teach you humility more quickly from, from the first moment that you meditate than saying the mantra and returning to the mantra. So when we lay aside the words, the thoughts, and the images by which we know or think we know, of course we can know God but never as an object. This is fundamental Christian theology. You can never know God as an object, Saint, Saint Irenaeus, but only by sharing in God's own self-knowledge. What is the self-knowledge of God? The Holy Spirit. Saint Paul says, who, who knows a person except that spirit within that person? So it, our self-knowledge is our spirit. And this, he says, this is the spirit that we have received from God, God's own spirit, God's own self-knowledge. And the only way we can know God is by entering into God's own self-knowledge, sharing in the life of God, as St. Peter says. So this may uh, help to explain why meditation has always been an object of suspicion to religious people who think that they know God better than non-religious people. But as Matthew 25 suggests to us, the sheep and the goats, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? It may be non-religious people who know God sight better than religious people. We have to let go of God as we know God in order to be known by God. And in this sense, of course, meditation represents a desert experience. But the desert has always been the place of encounter with God. And the desert is full of oases. The test of the spiritual or the Christian nature of the mantra is saying it, sounding it, listening to it faithfully and continuously. Even when we come to an oasis and we feel peace, contentment, sweet delight, fulfillment, joy. 
And then what do we do? A little voice may say to you, okay, now you can drop this damned mantra. You've, you've earned this. You've earned it. Just float. Just enjoy it. Now, this is a subtle personal choice. But the tradition is quite clear. We say the mantra, according to John Cassian, in prosperity and in adversity. When you're in the driest part of the desert or when you're in a beautiful oasis. But the way you say the mantra is going to change as you renew the faith of the journey that you're making. And you renew the faith by returning to the mantra. Each time you return to it, you are deepening your faith. Like John Maine said, you need more faith, not less, on the journey of meditation. But that deeper faith is exactly what you are developing by this faithful repetition of the mantra. And so, uh, in prosperity or in adversity, when the meditation seems delightful and peaceful or seems a hard slog, difficult, you say the mantra. At first, in the beginning of the journey, you're saying it in, the, in your head with many interruptions. Gradually, if you practice it, you will find that it sounds more in the heart. And then at a deeper level, you'll find that it opens up a, a more subtle uh, level of your, your, your prayer and your spirit where you are listening to it. At these moments, we embrace the wisdom of the mantra most purely. We discover that it is not about getting something, which is the wisdom of the world. You should be getting something out of meditation, something you can evaluate and put in the bank or put on your CV. But much more, much more useful, is the foolishness of saying, I'm doing this to lose everything. Sounds a bit foolish, but it's the wisdom of God. Only in that commitment to radical poverty is the ego transcended. And all traces of the ego need to be filtered out of the experience. In this way, our sense of self is surrendered. We leave self behind. And it is reborn in other-centeredness, in spontaneity, in peace, in joyfulness, and the capacity to pay attention and, and, and to respond compassionately to others. Our sense of God also undergoes a death and resurrection from idolatry, from thinking we know God and what God is, what God wants. And we are there to enforce God's orthodoxy on the world. 
So we move from that sense of God, idolatrous sense of God, to union. And at first it may seem as if we're losing our faith. And if you feel that, be glad, because that means something is changing. And this is where the loving fidelity of a community, the support of spiritual friendship uh, is, is vital. In such a community, faith can be found by the seeker, whoever is passing by, whoever pops into your meditation group or whoever comes into, into Bombo, wherever they are, whoever they are, wherever they come from. And they can find by contact with the faith of the people there in your meditation group, in Bombo, wherever, in the regular practice, carried out in the context, in a simple context of scripture and Eucharist, where they meet a Christian faith that is not proselytizing, not pushing itself down their throats, and is giving them all the space in the world to catch the faith, where faith is not taken for granted. So it's in this kind of community, which is what the church should be, is a communion of communities, parishes, meditation groups, monasteries, meditation centers. It's in this communion of communities living out this experience that the faith can be transmitted. It's, it's, it's irresistible then. So the mantra creates this community of faith out of people of different beliefs. Hard for the left-brained Christian to understand because they only identify with their beliefs and they confuse faith with belief. And the only membership fee that you have to pay for this community is, in this way, is the faithful repetition of the mantra. And even if you don't pay that fee, even if you're not saying the mantra, you're still welcome to sit in the silence and get whatever you can out of it. And we're not saying this is the only way. If you can find a better way, let me know. Find an easier way, let me know. The way is narrow, as Jesus said. And few are they who find it. But those few can make all the difference. Don't trust the mob. We can see what the mob is doing to, to our political world, what populism is doing. So don't trust the mob. Trust the community, not the crowd. And even if the crowd or the mob, uh, you know, is shouting, you know, principles that you agree with, especially then. But these few who form the community, the leaven, the salt of the earth, 
they can become the critical mass necessary for the contemplative revolution that we need. So is it self-centered, my group of navel gazers? <laughs> Jesus was called a blasphemer. Meditators can be called selfish or heretics. And they could be if they use their time of meditation just for holy floating, <laughs> just for what Cassian calls the pernicious peace or the lethal sleep, just for relaxation purposes seeking experience rather than letting go. But by, and we all start like this. But by their fruits you will know them. And the fruit is other-centeredness. We have in the small print of our community a little condition that says if you do not, if after 20 years of meditating, you do not become a more loving person, you get your money back. <laughs> so whatever you've spent on retreats, books, tapes, even your travel expenses, <laughs> we will re return it all with interest. <laughs> Under certain conditions. Uh, if you have not become a more loving person. So I just want to end, uh, a few more things, but I don't want to go on, but I, I just want to end with, um, well, first of all, this idea of practice. The more deeply we say the mantra, the more we undergo the integration of the self with others and with God, and the inner and the outer become one. That's, spirit, that's the spiritual journey. We see it in some of the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas. The mantra is a healing of the essential human wound, the self-division within ourselves, which brings about an alienation between ourselves and others and the environment and with God. It is a medicine. I began by talking about meditation and medicine. Meditation is a universal, what am I saying? Meditation is a universal medicine. 50% of patients in healthcare systems don't take their medication. It's a huge waste, which of course is great for the pharmaceutical industries. So you go to the doctor. You like the doctor. You enjoy the attention. And then the doctor, who's a kind person, will give you a prescription. So then you go off and you fill the prescription and you go home. And you take it for a couple of days and you feel okay. You stop taking it. 50%. So, as Jesus said, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. As St. James says, it's not just enough just to look in the mirror and see, you have to act. So hearing and reading about meditation, 
loving the idea of meditation, but doing nothing about it. Practice. Take it. But God is the God of second chances. So I just want to end with some words of uh, <coughs> a great spiritual figure of, of our time, of the 20th century, Ramana Maharshi. whose uh, wisdom flowed directly from his own source, or from the God within himself. And there is nothing in this, these words that could not be echoed in the Christian mystical tradition. There is along with quietness in the mind, this silence. I'm sorry, I didn't forget. <laughs> there is consciousness along with quietness in the mind. This is the state to be aimed at. Say it again. There is consciousness along with quietness in the mind. This is the state to be aimed at. By silence, eloquence is meant. It is the best language. The thought-free experience of the spirit, of the self, is silence. The thought-free experience of the self is silence. The state which transcends speech and thought is silence. The state in which the I-thought does not arise in the least is silence. The experience of silence is alone the real and perfect knowledge. Silence is the most perfect form of work. The silence of the self is always there. As long as you run with the running mind, you cannot have it. How can silence be explained in words? You can hear more talks and conversations in the media section on our website, wccm.org or in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. For WCCM, I am Elba Rodriguez.